So Melissa, Kurt. how are you feeling right now? I, um, my body has a bunch of goosebumps on it. Um, my eyes are a little wet and I am so intensely inspired that it hurts a little bit. How are you feeling? Same. Dang. Y'all are not ready for what we did. I want to say for you, but honestly, this is really a selfish thing that Kurt and I did this week. Uh, which is to say that this episode is going to feature, I would say, less us interviewing and more us getting schooled by the Pam Katie Wyckoff. And if you don't know who <laughs> Pam Katie Wyckoff is, she'll introduce herself and tell you all about her in the episode. But let me tell you what I know about Pam Katie Wyckoff. She and her husband, Joe, coached at Apple Valley High School in Minnesota for Nearly two decades. Started an amazing... Over two decades at Over Apple two Valley. decades. Nationally known team. Or, like, oratory is, at Nationals is now named after them. Oh my like, gosh, I'm just realizing we forgot to ask how that happened. I don't know how it happened, other than the uh. fact that, like, they're incredible, so obviously it would happen. Uh, she serves now for the NSDA, uh is a major proponent of our activity and is also just like a ridiculously kind, wonderful person. As you will learn listening to our interview with her, where I just, I'm really glad that we decided not to video chat each other this week, Kurt, because I was just a hot mess of emotions and note taking for that entire hour plus. Yeah. You know, the thing is like, I was, so nervous slash excited about talking to Pam. And I, I guess I thought in my head, maybe that it would, it would sound more like talking to like an SDA board president, Pam Katie Wyckoff or like Pam Katie Wyckoff, who, you know, oratory nationals was named after, but like, it so quickly just turned into like a conversation with another coach. Yeah. A coach who has, way more experienced than we do, but who was open and affirming and just wanted to like share her knowledge and her experience. And that's, it's such an incredible thing to have somebody in our activity who is just at the highest echelon of what can be achieved as a person, as a coach for her students, for her school, as a volunteer, as a service leader, she has just achieved so much. And she's still just like, yes, let's chat and let's talk. And I didn't feel like the, the nervousness went away so quickly because yeah. she was just so open and warm and lovely. And I can already tell you, I will be re-listening to this episode over and over and over oh, again. 100%. I, um, when we first started talking about who we'd want to interview for this podcast and we were like throwing out names, the first name that I threw out as a complete and total joke was Pam Katie Wyckoff because I have been enamored of her for years now. Like, the way that people she just has always been a benchmark for me of of a level within which I would like to one day achieve or even be within arm's reach of achieving and what she brings to our association and national level and what she brings to our activity on the whole has been so amazing. So I walked into this nervous as heck. I spent all day being hecka nervous. And yet the second it started, it was just like I was taking I was just out for coffee with my cool friend, Kurt, and this amazing woman, Pam, just taking Mm -hmm. notes 
learning the learns and it was you guys it's so good i don't and i don't think we're gonna we're overhyping it like no if you have ever had any hesitations about oratory if you have ever felt out of your depth with oratory the way that pam breaks down the techniques that she and joe have developed for their students make it so easy and y'all the her like thesis statement about oratory and what oratory is to her like mind blown i like goosebumps covered my entire body they have not left the way that they approach it makes so much sense yeah it, like as, uh, as i said in our conversation this was like a master class i just took a master class from pam katie wyckoff um and i'm yeah i'm so excited to share this with people um and and really we should just like get out of the way and let her do her thing. Um, but I did just want to say to everybody who's listened to this whole year, this is the 12th episode in this series. It's like the 14th or 15th episode we've done since January. Um, really? Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We've done, we've done extra special episodes. We did the college thing. We did the discussion of George Mason University. <laughs> we've done we've done not only our 12 categorious episodes but uh several more um and this year we have had more engagement and discussion um outside of the podcast than we ever have before and i'm so grateful for everybody who listens to this who makes it worth putting in the time and energy um especially right now i'm grateful to them because we kept going and we kept doing this because we were getting that feedback from people and today we got to talk to pam katie wyckoff as a result so thank you guys for being listeners for being vocal supporters for engaging with us for calling us out when you think we're wrong for complimenting us uh, for just saying hi and introducing yourself it's been a great year for the podcast we've loved getting to meet so many new people new friends and um we'll be back at some point but we're taking a break now it's been a long few months also kurt thank you for being the oh. best co-host i could ever imagine and for being someone who helped set up us getting to talk to Pam, Katie, mother effing Wyckoff. Well, you're welcome. Yeah, I'm crying again. Stop it. Stop I it. Can't. And thank you for being a great co-host and for pushing me to keep doing this and keep going and making it better. I wouldn't still be doing this if you hadn't come on board a few years ago. So thank you. It's my pleasure. All right. So okay, but now it's time for Pam, said, Katie, Wyckoff. Cool. I'm just going to transition into it with that. Great. So today we are joined by a very special guest um, joining us on the podcast today to talk about oratory. Our final category in our categorious series is the legend herself, Pam Katie Wyckoff. Welcome, Pam, to Forensics Faces. Thank you. That was a really nice introduction. I appreciate that. <laughs> Well, we are so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, as we were talking about before we started recording, you were like the first name that came up when we started talking about doing interviews with people outside of our own organization, outside of Wisconsin. Um, and Melissa is, I'm, I'm sure, freaking girl. out right now. I truly, I, I am, I am truly like clasping my hands around my face just to hold in my excitement because anyone who knows me and has talked with me about oratory has heard me like go off about like Pam Kitty Wyckoff and Apple Valley oratories and like how they are a model for how I try to get my students to write it. And they're 
how often we've referenced the videos from your team, from their national final performances, because if y'all didn't know, Pam Katie Wyckoff has coached over a hundred national finalists because like, of course, <laughs> so, I'm a huge fan girl um, in the way that like you are an inspiration as a coach to me, but also just you're always wearing great outfits at nationals. And I'm always like, where does she, how does she always look so put together when I'm over here, like blotting sweat, but also freezing. Cause I'm in AC and everything. And you always just look flawless and it's unfair. Well, that's really kind of you too. And I'm not quite sure we got all those numbers with you're better at uh, keeping tally than I am, but thank you for, for being so, so generous with your comments. That's really nice. <laughs> so Pam, the first thing we like to do with people who are on the podcast for the very first time is just to ask, what's your forensic story? And I am sure you have quite the story. Well, um, it is interesting in the sense that I started in high school in a very small rural uh, program in Minnesota. In my class, there was only 75 kids graduating class. So it's a very small team. And I didn't even discover that we had a speech team until about my sophomore year. I think I found out that we had one, kind of stumbled across it. And so I was able to compete um, towards the end of my high school career in two events, which are, you know, unique in the sense that I started with small group discussion because my teacher thought that I was good at participating in class. And so I should uh, be part of this uh, small group discussion event that solves problems and then after doing that for about a year, um, I was also involved in theater at the school. And I said, I'd really like to try something like acting. And so I was put into storytelling. And so um, my high school career was really not at all involved. And I had only heard of like the NFL at the time and how people could go to nationals. We didn't have that at my school. And I always sort of longed for those opportunities. So we didn't do it. I just heard about it. And, um, and then when I went to college, I had the opportunity to explore a lot more events. So I went to Southwest State in Marshall, Minnesota, and there I got exposed to lots of interp events. Probably my favorite would have been drama um, but did prose or poetry type events as well. And then my public speaking events that I liked the most were informative and persuasive speaking. Um, also some rhetorical criticism because in college you do everything, you know, right. they really have you working. And I even dabbled in policy debate for a while, which gave me a nice background in, in uh, debate. So my years at Southwest State were great. And um, I love that opportunity. It was certainly formative in my desire to be a teacher and a coach uh, in communications. And so then when I graduated, I went to um, Mankato Loyola High School, also a small school, um, only 200 uh, people in the school, nine through 12. So very small. And I was there for 10 years and it was a fantastic experience in my life. And I started our then NFL, but now NSDA chapter there and also mm -hmm. got involved in NCFL and it opened a whole new world of national competition and different ways of doing things that I really appreciated. And when you went to that high school, did you take over a program or did you yeah. have to create one? Yes, I honestly, um, 
it had existed in some way, shape or form, but not very much. And honestly, like I didn't have a coach that was doing it. Like uh, some of the sisters who were there had worked with it. One of them was famous at the time, Sister Charlene, who was there in, in later years that I got to meet. But no, it was it was pretty. My, my recollection is it was pretty much a ground up start, and it was great. Um, I loved teaching in a small school. I loved knowing everybody in the school, teaching everybody's brothers and sisters, and knowing every parent. And it was mm-hmm. great. And there were about about a quarter of the team was on the of the school population was on the team, so it was large, and we competed in what's called Class A, which is the small division of the state tournament. So um, those were great years, great kids, great schools, all all positive, positive memories. And the only reason I left was because I was asked to um, become the director at Apple Valley High School when they were opening up a new school in the district. And so I was interested in a new challenge and because I'd been there for 10 years and I thought, well, it'd be neat to see what it was like to work in a larger school. Sure. And a good friend of mine uh, encouraged me uh, to apply. And so I sought that out and then I became the director there. And uh, Wayne Britton was the person that first told me about it. He was the policy debate coach there and wanted to start a Lincoln Douglas debate program, which I had also done at Loyola. And so I started the Lincoln Douglas debate program and then took over the speech program in its entirety. And that was a total change because now I had about a hundred and I like to call it 101 people on the team. It was <laughs> <laughs> kind of like Dalmatians, you know, lots of people. And then, so that's the number that always stuck out. So it, it was a, a huge learning curve, but I loved that too. So it came at a great time in my life. And I was the director there for 24 years and loved all of it too. I've had great experiences in both types of uh, environments and coached all the events of the 13 events in Minnesota. So I know what it's like in mm-hmm. Wisconsin to have lots of events and also did the Lincoln Douglas program there. And I retired as the director of the program in 2013, continued to teach for several more years. And in terms of uh, involvement with the program, I serve as a mentor and assist as needed with tournaments and coaching, um, you know, at the pleasure of the current director and coaches there. So that's kind of my coaching part of it. And then I've mm-hmm. done professional involvement with service too, but um, so that's kind of the coaching side of things. Before we move off coaching, I have questions. Sure. So you said you're starting at Apple Valley High School. It's a new school. You have 101 students mm-hmm. and your program, as far as I know, is still, you know, at Apple Valley is still very big and, and popular and, mm-hmm. and prestigious and very competitive. Was it that way the whole way through? And how do you sustain that for 24 years? Um, Well, I think it's a combination of, you know, great, great students, great families, lots of administrative support. I felt in both Mm. schools, I had administrators that were very, um, very accommodating and supportive of the value of speech and debate. And that makes a huge difference. And um, I was able to bring like some of my uh, former students in as an assistant. One is still a teacher and doing wonderfully there, um, Scott Voss, who was a student of mine at Loyola. 
And so you start gathering people around you that you've worked with and Mm. um, finding, you know, alumni that are willing to help. And there's a lot of students with a lot of allegiance to the program and they give back a lot. And that continues to this day. So um, there's just a strong, strong support in those respects. And I, I can't thank our administration enough for continually caring about the program. So. Oh, that, it literally I'm welling up just hearing that. Cause that's so incredible. Yeah. Um, just knowing that so many programs, I mean, there's, there's always naturally ebb and flow, but so many programs here in Wisconsin, we've seen go from teams of a hundred down to teams of 20 or less. Yeah. You know, and, and just in general, we see the activity losing numbers and, and to hear that that's been sustained, uh, for so long and has given so many young people an opportunity to participate is just awesome. That's just incredible. Congratulations. Well, I'm really proud of, of what I was able to do and what people have been able to carry on. It's, it's uh, a huge compliment to them as well as, as I said, if, if schools have administrators that fully buy in to the importance of what you're doing, it makes a huge difference. Um, parent support is gigantic, you know, thank goodness for the booster clubs that help you raise (laughs) money to make things happen. And, Mm -hmm. um, and also the alumni that want to give back and coaches that, that come back because of what it did for them. And that's, that's, that's really rewarding, you know, the long-term, the long-term relationships. So, and honestly, let's face it, coach, the programs are often very much coach driven. So the real, the real difficulty is keeping people in the activity once they leave it because they go on to other careers or a coach leaves a program and there's no one to step in. So Mm. I was actually yesterday at our state tournament, I was talking to who was once named Tammy Boyce, one of my former students who now is the head coach at Mankato Loyola. And I thank (laughs) her so much as a student who came back to be in the program. And there's been other alumni that have been there since, but it's just great to see her and what she's been able to do and her excitement about, about keeping that program alive and going. So, you know, it's it's about people. (laughs) So that was your coaching work, but you've also been really involved, um, like at, at the national level, as far as like the NSDA is concerned as well, correct? Yes, yes. So So how did you get started in that? Well, um, I was always um, excited. I I like service and leadership. And so early on when I was at Loyola, um, when we started uh, both the NSDA, I'll call it now, and NCFL chapters, I worked with being on the committees, you know, running for the committees and offices and coordinating that type of thing. So um, really, as long as I can remember, I have been on the committee work structure itself. And eventually, at one point, when I saw the opportunity to maybe shape some some choices with the organization for the NFL then, um, I wanted to run for office. And um, I was a huge believer and still am in the importance of membership voice. And I really wanted to bring that dimension um, and the importance of, of coach input. And so I decided to run. And fortunately, I've been on the board for the last 15 years and um, eventually able to serve as vice president. And then this has been my first almost full year as president. And so it's been a journey that I have found really rewarding because I 
feel that that organization in particular has given so much to me that I love seeing what it can do as an organization for everyone who belongs mm-hmm. to the activity as a whole. So, Yeah, and it's been great watching the, the efforts that the NSDA has been making towards inclusion on all levels and really working on uh, embracing the diversity of our activity and those sorts of things. And I've had students give feedback about how cool it is to see uh, especially on the name badges at nationals, people being able to have their pronouns and stuff on them. Those sorts of things have been really great changes that the organization has been making. So, Yeah, I appreciate that because it really has been, um, I, I, I credit Tommy Lindsay in particular, um, the current vice president who um, was very proactive in reminding the board of the importance of inclusion on a much broader scale. We often think about membership voice, but the component of inclusion in that voice and having representatives that uh, people see in different positions and are recognized for their youth unique qualities and diversity that they bring um, was, I think it has really helped our organization uh, grow in important ways. And I'm really, I'm I'm impressed with the work that um, Scott Wan and his staff has done with the Rostrum and uh, many of the efforts at Nationals to do that. So it's a, it's really a, I think a good team effort by a board that really cares about this as a whole. And we're doing some exciting things this summer with a special workshop on inclusion and diversity to take that even a step farther. So Yeah, and I know those efforts have definitely inspired us on a state level because I'm part of the Wisconsin Coaches Association and on my own little chair position there. But it's led us to having those conversations of what are our coaches and what are our students seeing when they look at those of us who are serving in positions of power? Are they seeing themselves represented? And frankly, right now, they're not. So a big thing that we're going to be working on when we have our uh coaching like general meeting uh, coming up in a few weeks is talking about how we can really work on making sure that students and other coaches in our state get to see themselves. And I think that's something that the national organization has done a really great job of helping uh, bring more attention to. So great because that's, that's what's important because we want to give you the tools and or examples to help foster it, but you have to have people like you and others in your, you know, coaching community that foster it too, because it's one thing to talk it, but you really have to walk it. And um, I think that's, that's important. So thank you for taking the initiative to do that. And hopefully that's happening all across the country too. Fingers crossed. I, I and hopefully hope. all of all of our Wisconsin, all my Wisconsin coach friends are listening, going, okay, well, Melissa's been saying it, but if Pam Katie Wyckoff is saying it, maybe we'll listen to her. Well, it's not just me saying it. It's uh it's a whole wide group of people across the country that are saying it. So you're on the right track, Melissa. <laughs> Great. Good to hear. Yeah. Um, so continuing on our right track, let's get into our big topic of discussion today, as much as I would love to just keep talking about you and hearing things from you, um, we are here to talk about oratory, which is a category that Kurt and I both love and hold very dear to our hearts. And it is how I was introduced to you as a person and a coach and sort of a forensics luminary, if you will. Uh, So did you... You said you did a little bit of everything in high school. Did you ever compete in oratory? Um, I competed in oratory in college. 
So I did persuasive speaking at Southwest State. And as I said, it was one of my favorite events. And so that's where I really learned about the event very much from a college perspective, which is um, a little different than the way I've evolved as a coach with the event, but um, it was formative. I loved it. And, and I, I did public speaking in class in our speech communications class in Lake Crystal. So of course I knew a little bit about that, but it wasn't until college that I competed in it. So. I never Melissa, got did to you, do I was oratory. Like, okay, I was just about to ask. I was like, did you ever do it in I, high school? I wrote an oratory my junior year of high school for national qualifiers. Uh, it was called Medicating the Mountain Dew Nation. And it was uh, supposed to be about how we uh, have spent more time throwing medication at uh, kids who have problems in classrooms rather than addressing the actual classroom environments. But I never got to compete with it because I did not, my audition with it did not go well. And so I did not get a spot to national qualifiers that oh. year with it. Oh. So, but it's okay. I was okay with it. <laughs> it's a memory in other ways because it's obviously it is. formative for you. So, yeah. And, and that title still sticks in my head all the time because I was so proud of the alliteration of it yes, because yeah. I alliteration is one of my favorite things and one of my favorite aspects of like <laughs> like tools to come up with in oratory to help bring attention to things and so I was so intensely proud of it and I remember like walking around on the team like guys did I tell you my oratory title I came with a good title for my oratory so but I never got to compete with it in high school at all mm-hmm. well at least, like I said, it's it's a it's a it's a formative memory, so that's good. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Kurt, did you ever get to do it, or were you doing other speeches? Oh no, I did oratory for my whole junior year. Oh. Um, but I was also doing it next to you know Stephanie, who was my cl- one of my teammates, who was the state champion, and then also in the state at that time was a gal named Venus Cooper, who at CFL nationals won oratory and then the next year tied to win oratory. Wow. So, uh, and there were, it was just a really talented batch of speakers back in the day. So I considered myself lucky if I made it into a final round, my Mm -hmm. junior year in oratory. And because the competition was so intense, uh, my coach for my senior year said enough of this speech crap, go do acting and, (laughs) and get us some team points that way. Cause we, we already have enough powerhouse speakers go do acting. And so I finally switched. Um, but I loved speech. I mean, speech was what I did all through high school up until my senior year. And, um, I wish I had given my oratory the time and attention it deserved, but I was a junior in high school and you could not have told me that I was not approaching it correctly. And in hindsight, I was not approaching it correctly. Um, but I have since learned as a coach uh, that uh, I should have approached it uh, differently and, and put more more work into it. Um, and then I could look back on that time and be more proud of what I created. I think I got by on on charm and being a good speaker because the speech itself was not not very strong. Well, there's a lot to be said for learning from trial and error and nobody knows how to do it from the start. And you learn a lot from mistakes as much as when something works, it's like, woohoo, that's that worked. (laughs) (laughs) We can do that again. You know, something like that is going to stick. So, you know, I think that 
a lot of people, uh, you know, it's sort of an immersion process in the activity because many people don't ever do it competitively. And so it's just a matter of, um, you know, learning from your own examples of what you do with your kids, but also learning from other examples, you know, and uh, so I, I, I think it's all part of the process. And now let's talk about our experiences as uh, coaches in oratory. I've done okay. Uh, I'm as we as we say around these parts. I'm no Pam Katie Wyckoff, but I I've had students who've done well with it. Uh, the 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 day I decided we were watching oratory finals, it was when oratory finals were still at like eight o'clock in the morning for nationals. Oh, yes. So I made my kids get up and go with me, and I remember watching. Uh, one of your oratories, uh, it was, I think it was something, something in the title about tailor made. It was about appreciating things in life that are older mm-hmm. and the idea of like preserving things. Yes. And I remember just watching that oratory and being like, that's the kind of oratory I want to do. Yeah. That's like, the, that's favorite. the level I want to be at. Yeah. That's one of my favorite ones because, um, I've got lots of, you know, wonderful memories about all kinds of students, but certain students stick out for certain reasons. And I think that uh, Nader's vision of the importance of old and, you know, that too often we're more interested in the the new shiny thing that's just happened on the forefront of technology or anything. And then when we start believing that things are made to be, you know, really tossed and forgotten instead of that we need to value, you know, the things that are old and valuable, whether it's memories, uh, people, you know, prized possessions, all kinds of things. So that was a great, um, a great uh, experience with him. And he, you know, did a wonderful job of shaping that speech. So. And just was casually a a two-time national champion. (laughs) Yes, he was. He had a lot of natural talent. Let's just say he really loves to speak. <laughs> oh, he yeah. was right. so yeah. engaging. Kurt, what about you as a coach? Uh, I mean, I've had some orators that have had some success, but I'll be honest. The one that did the best was the kid who uh, was Molly. Uh, Melissa, you know Molly. Yes. Uh, so Mo- Molly was the youngest of a family of four and all of her three older brothers had competed in forensics. Oh. Um, sweet, smart emotionally intelligent young woman. And by her senior year, she wanted to write an oratory and she uh, had Tourette's syndrome and she wanted to write about her experience with Tourette's. And she wrote a speech that did not follow any of the rules for like what we think original oratory needs to be. And I said, you know, this doesn't really follow any of the rules, but if you believe in it, it sort of makes its own kind of sense. And she went with it and did really well. She was my, my quarter finalist at nationals Great. in oratory. Great. Um, so again, I would love to take more credit, but really it was all her and she kind of broke the, the mold and still did well. So. Well, and that's an important part of oratory is the student and the student putting their own imprint on it and what they bring to the table. So really, even though she wasn't following maybe a traditional format, um, certainly her experience and perspective must have really resonated with people. Otherwise, she Mm -hmm. would not have made it that far. So, Yeah, for sure. 
Oh, and Pam, how have you, how have your kids done in a work story? (laughs) Are you you like pretty okay at it? Uh, Well, um, I love the event. um, And we've had many students that have done super well. I'm not a big one for quantifying how that goes, but I am really, really proud of all the students that have not only competed locally or at the state level, but also at the national level. So it's been a, it's been a great event for us. Um, I, I have loved it since I first did it, but I've really kind of changed um, a lot of as a coach because of what I learned from Joe Wyckoff, my husband, when watching him as, as a coach earlier on in his life and with his students. And so it's an event that we're really proud of and we're proud of the students that are in it. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of great memories with a lot of great kids. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Well, that's what I want to get into. Cause I want to hear from you how you craft an oratory, uh, with your kids. So where do you usually start? Well, um, I'm going to mention that we start really with our definition of what an oratory is, which is slightly different from maybe a rule definition, but, you know, because on yeah. a basic level, an oratory, no matter what is a, you know, a speech that is written by the student that is persuasive in nature mm-hmm. and generally deals with a problem. And, you know, that's a very basic definition of it. But um, Joe, early on in his life, came up with a, a different definition of oratory that is a really guiding principle. So would that be okay if I shared that with you to kind of see how Please. Please. So so the definition of oratory for us, uh, and again, I, I credit him as the originator of this, is that an oratory is the creative, analytical sharing of a truth that has both insight and significance. Although logical, it must elicit an emotional response, and it must appeal to both the head and the heart. So uh, my husband is a English teacher by trade who fell into the um, event of, of speech communication simply by all of a sudden seeing some things happen at their school and saying, being asked, like, hey, you want to get involved? And he did. And so he learned, really, and he's a very out-of-the-box thinker. And so like many coaches, he um, kind of began to watch and examine and he framed what he thinks a really good oratory is. And so we use that as the foundation for it. I learned it from him and it's been a staple at Apple Valley all the years that I have been there and still is the case there. And um, so uh, like just to break it down a little more, the um, creative part where it says the creative analytical sharing of a truth. The creative is to remind the student to be original in their perspective and their style to truly capture the interest of the audience and to help the student come to a new perspective. Because I think that's the hardest thing is to help people a little bit, Melissa, like you said, when you listen to Nader's speech to think of old in a different way that you hadn't thought of before, mm-hmm. it's, it's trying to do that. It's trying to get a new perspective and analytical Um, to remind the student to truly research and understand how and why this problem exists and what we need to know to change the mindset or the behavior that is the issue. 
And then the sharing of a truth may sound odd because it might sound like you're talking about a truism, but it doesn't mean that. It means that sharing of a truth, both in terms of content and delivery, the truth is the new way of viewing an idea that makes sense and that the audience will then adopt as a truth that they can begin to understand Mm. and uh, that they share a truth because you believe in what you're saying and you want others to believe it. So um, it's not the typical, like what I learned in college of a very set problem cause solution with a heavily pro con view of, of uh, what a topic has to be. It doesn't mean it can't be controversial, but ultimately it's a problem that you're trying to um, change in some way. And especially if it's something that you can access, it's accessible to you to change as a person with the people around you and the way you conduct your life or the way you believe things. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a fundamentally different way of looking at oratory that for me was very um, liberating. I guess is the word, a very yeah, learning I, process and students love it because it allows them to be creative and to think and to analyze and research kind of with a goal of bringing this new idea to the forefront. So mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a, a, a key to what we have done and what has worked for our students to do. And we've, we've taught this at, workshops and camps and things like that. And I think there are others that have bought into it, but I know for us, it's, it's a, it starts with that. So that's kind of the beginning. Well, I have taken notes because that is that, I mean, it's brilliant because I'm, I'm hearing it and I'm thinking this is revolutionary. Like it's just a, a totally different way of approaching it. And yet at the same time, it makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. It's new, but it, it also fits in perfectly with what I understand a successful oratory to be. Good, um, good. Because, that's, you know, I think, I just think it's, you're still dealing with a problem. You're still dealing with something has to be changed. But the opportunity for students to help us think differently makes it really accessible. That's another thing that I believe firmly with in the event is that, um, it was hard for me, even though I was brought up in a culture of much more policy-driven speeches, it's very difficult to engage audiences with things that demand policy change on a large scale or demand public funding or they demand government support or things like that. And because it's hard for people to grab onto that because you feel like there's still another barrier between you and the solution. Mm -hmm. So when students begin to deal with things that are more about mindsets and behaviors that are problems, then you can get really a connection with your audience to begin thinking. And that can transform policy too in the long run. And that can transform our communities and our schools in the long run. But it's not grabbing onto things where you all of a sudden need funding for something that is the only way to make a difference. So. I think that's a, and I think that really jazzes kids too, because it feels like it's something we all can do, not that you need someone to be the intermediary step for you to do it. So. So when you're choosing a a topic with a student, uh, 
you know, I miss, well, I guess I shouldn't assume anything. You know, the student comes to you with a topic. Do you and Joe have kind of like a grab bag of topics that you've thought of that you could recommend to a student? Um, if somebody comes to you with an idea that's not fully formed, how do you typically like discern that with them? Like, how do you get to the topic, get to that thesis statement? Well, I think there's part of, there's truth in each of those options. Um, I don't think that anybody who coaches oratory isn't always sort of looking at the world in a slightly different way and constantly listening to the news in a little different way or reading editorials or listening to programs, you know, that, that, that gives you an aha moment. Mm -hmm. So yes, um, I think it's great for coaches to, to kind of keep a list of potential topics, but I learned at an early age, you can't just have a list of topics and then kind of like divvy it out to a bunch of kids because they have no connection to it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And they're better as potential discussion items that may even lead to other ideas or they're, they're topics to think about and research and then discuss. But uh, a much more organic process, which unfortunately takes longer, but it's much more personally rewarding for kids to, you know, take a little different approach. We have two different ways I'll mention of doing uh, the way I can say you can approach a topic. One is inductively and one is deductively. So the most accessible in terms of easy are the more deductive process where you start out with a topic idea and then you go to research it or the kids do the traditional let's go to Barnes and Noble and look at some of the interesting books that have been generated on topics and then see if there's something that appeals to them that's a much more deductive process Mm -hmm. the inductive process may come better from kind of like uh, playing detective with lots of pieces of evidence lots of clues that lead you to a conclusion. So having kids keep like an evidence file um, and, you know, clippings of newspaper stories or articles or documentaries they've seen, things like that, and then using that to generate topic ideas, whether for the individual students or their teammates, is good because that discussion generates topics too. And sometimes something will come from like, just one idea and then it gravitates. So I just think it's important for kids to think that they have the latitude. Yes, go ahead and do the traditional way of kind of looking for topics, but also think about things that are, that you can gather throughout the year and, or uh, that you've seen things that you may have watched things that happen in your own life, things you have observed, those also generate very important topics for kids because they're very real to their own lives. This is so great. I love this I so much. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm like, have, like, part of me is like, Melissa, you're, you're, you're on a podcast, you're hosting a podcast, but also part of me is just like, just let Pam keep talking. Just let her keep talking. Well, I don't want to talk too long about anything, but I'm just saying those oh, are, no, those no, not so just saying. You know, that's, that's helped me. And that helps kids think of different ideas too. Yeah. You know, where it's, that's where you kind of get a new idea with something that you might not think. And it may just come, it may just come from um, a combination. Like, like I'll give you just a, an odd story from the past. We had a student named Rob Lindgren who was very good at humorous interpretation, but he was also super smart. He's a good writer. And, um, 
you know, he liked like Disneyland characters and, you know, all kinds of things. And he'd read an article about this sort of odd uh, thing where people were doing very unrealistic things, sort of like a fantasy life existence where they would, you know, they'd be taking a picture over the Grand Canyon and they aren't thinking logically and they, they fall over the Grand Canyon while taking pictures because it's like, they're in this fantasy world of the beauty of the landscape, but they don't realize where the feet is under the ground. This is like a completely unusual story, but he ended up when we were talking about it, he said, it just seems like they live in a fantasy land. And, you know, we took in essence that little seedling talked a lot more, did a lot more research. And he did a speech about, you know, how we need to think about things more realistically and not have a fantasy life existence. And he found many cases where policies and programs and community programs and things were not were not rooted in real world expectations that would give real world decent solutions. Hmm. So that's just that's just I wasn't really planning on going on to that in depth, but I'm saying how a seedling of an idea with enough discussion and a energetic kid who likes humorous and can have fun with Disneyland little references and things to his speech can take a piece of evidence and, and research and turn it into something special. Yeah. And as important as that is to oratory specifically, what it also brings to mind, you know, Pam is just like that it takes in coaching any category, it takes a coach who's invested and who's listening and who's paying attention to be able to identify that thing, that small notion and then feed it in such a way that it turns into something bigger and better. Um, and, you know, this is a podcast that we hope young people listen to as well to get advice, but largely a lot of our messages to coaches. Um, and sometimes it's, it's a reminder to each other to stay present, stay listening. Um, sometimes the answer doesn't have to come from you, but in fact, you can, you can find it in what the students are saying to you and then just help them. Right. And that's, and then that's when they're truly invested in what they're talking about. Yeah. So. I love that. So when it comes to writing, then are you like, do you guys have a set process that you make every kid go through? Do you like must do an outline and then you do the first paragraph and then we attack each one? Um, do you just kind of let the kid write? Like, how do you usually work with kids on, on getting to a good written right. piece before they start getting it on its feet? Okay. Well, um, I'm a huge fan of research to inform ideas. So the first things kids need to do is after talking and having a seedling of an idea is researching it to see if there's anything that can back up what they're thinking or shape what they're thinking. So really for me, the writing process begins with research and I look at it for them. I tell them to think of it a little bit like a putting a puzzle together and to take all these pieces, which they're inductively gathering through very concrete research, but they're, they're reading and they're putting it together. And then they are eventually selecting evidence and generating commentary that will fit into the speech. So there's a lot of front loading before you ever write, because the reason writing is hard for kids is because they kind of know what they want to say, but they don't have a lot to back it up. Mm. And I am a firm believer that oratories have to be proven and they need evidence, and it can't just be what you think. You have to show that it's true in many ways, hopefully in a, in a cross-section of ways in our lives, in education or in politics or 
you know, other, other mainstream business world, that kind of thing, you know, find it, find if what you're talking about is true and then, and then you organize it. So it starts with research. What a lost art in today's world. (laughs) (laughs) Research. (laughs) Well, research and just find out if what you're saying is true. It's true. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. You're right. That is true. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and then that really, you know, that, like I said, informs them. It, it just gets them thinking about things that they wouldn't because every everybody is sort of in their own box. You only have your framework. You're only as knowledgeable mm-hmm. as what you know. So you need to really research and prove. So then um, big fan of organizing and outlining uh, and then definitely break it down into parts. So uh, we have a format. Um, this is something that my husband, again, uh did when he was at Chesterton, where he um, developed these five pyramids of writing. And they're called pyramids because I, I really like this image. Um, if you think of paragraphs, normally a paragraph is like a square with an indentation mm-hmm. and then it stops at the end of the paragraph, you know, so maybe midline or end of the line, but it's like a box. And if you think of when you're writing, you should think more of like a triangle or a funnel shape, like an upside down pyramid where they start with a main idea and then through the funnel of the paragraph, as you go down, it becomes more and more specific until you reach your point. Everything mm-hmm. that you write makes a point. It doesn't just start and end. It makes a point. And that whole funnel makes a point. And then that upside down triangle, if your individual images gets its depth, gets its pyramid shape by the richness of the evidence or the analysis that's put in. So it's not one dimensional, it's two dimensional. So kids think of it like this upside down pyramid. And there's um, five, five different pyramids. We're a little different from others. I think most people think of the five parts of an intro of a speech as an intro, you know, in the body, there's a problem, a cause, solution, and mm-hmm. then there is the conclusion. And we're we're true about an introduction and a conclusion, but the five pyramids, um, we would really label the next pyramid after the introduction is called where you're establishing the first facet of a problem, and then the next pyramid, three, is, is the... Um, second facet of a problem like there's usually more than one layer to why this is a problem so it's a it allows for more development of the problem area which we both really like because sometimes i don't think people can't change if they don't really believe it's a problem so that's the problem and then the next the fourth uh, part of it is your implications which is a little bit like harms not quite the same and then the solution slash conclusion comes at the end it's kind of a combined part so um, we've I, we've got this information like on the NSDA website. We've done some video workshops for kids that belong to the organization. They can look at that more clearly. But that is the writing process. I mean, it's it's working through it. If if that helps, I know I'm saying that yeah. kind of quickly because I know we have limited time. But I wanted to explain that. That's brilliant. I love that. I'm like gobsmacked kids with paragraphs, you know, as I'm an English teacher too, I have an English and a speech theater major and writing uh, kids don't really, they just write in chunks. Sometimes they don't Mm -hmm. really make a point. 
And if you really care about your language and your words and you start thinking that everything has to make a point, it makes a big difference in your writing. You, and then you get rid of frivolous things you don't need. And it all, it all leads to the conclusion that you wanted to make. Okay. So as a English teacher who also coaches speech, I have a difficulty sometimes convincing my kids that writing a speech and writing a paper are two different skill sets. Mm-hmm. Am I correct or am I wrong? I think you're, you're right in the sense that the language sounds a little different. I think that essays and reports have a more formal, professional tone that is slightly, depending on the report-like format, more detached. And a speech is definitely more like a conversation with your audience. And you're still going to write it in a very logical way, but it is a spoken art that you're writing. So you need to write as though you're speaking, not as though you're reading. I cannot wait to play that clip to my kids who are like, I wrote this really good paper in my AP comp class. Can it be my speech? The idea can be if you already have the research there and it can be fine tuned, but you cannot just memorize your AP comp paper and perform it. No. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think that's just reminding them that this is a spoken art and just like they wouldn't want someone to have a conversation by reading a piece of paper to them or talking to them like they're a, det- a detached reader. Not that readers can't be engaged, but you know the difference. It's got, it's got a different layer to mm-hmm. it as opposed to the conversation with a really good friend. It's totally different. So that's why it would probably need to be repackaged. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a great transition to the next part of this that I want to talk about, which is the presentation and you know practicing that that style of delivery, you know, sort of like you talked about in the writing, I always like to tell my kids, you know, you have to stop thinking of yourself as talking to your audience and start thinking of yourself as like having a conversation with your audience. Yeah. Um, in the, even, even in the delivery, um, you know, so your kids, I would imagine have some benefit of having like growing up in your system and they get to see great orators and, and emulate them. Um, but I'm sure you've also had ones where you get them in a room and you have to kind of like teach them how to speak. So where do you usually start? (laughs) Well, um, I do think in the, in, again, if the writing is them talking and typing, what they've written, it's going to be a lot easier to deliver. So I'll say that first, because it's very hard to sound conversational if you're not writing in a conversational way. But um, probably the best way to, a couple of ways to make things more communicative in terms of delivery is reminding them that they have to speak it in a way that's understandable to someone that is not has never heard it before. They've got one shot to explain it. So they have to break down their ideas. And as weird as it sounds, this is one of the ways I tell them. I say, just when you're writing, you know when there's a capital letter and when there's a comma and where there's a period. And you usually punctuate your paper so that you can read it effectively in your delivery, you're doing the same thing. You can't Mm -hmm. run all your ideas together. So when a sentence starts, 
it probably has a different look on your face or a different idea that's coming and acknowledge and break down the ideas into the phrases and the parts and, and recognize that punctuation. So that sounds like, yeah, like, yeah, uh-huh. But I don't know how many kids don't, they, they're either speed line it or they, yeah. they, they stop thinking about what they're saying. And, I, and I'm like, I don't understand what you're saying because you're not teaching me what you're saying. You're not helping me to understand. Treat it like I need to have this explained to me, not read to me. So that's, just, that's one mindset thing. And another probably favorite technique is to have Sid's kids sit and present their speech and talk their speech rather than stand up. I would have them sit in their chair and tell you their introduction because they'll start being more conversational. Mm. And then when they stand up, they won't be as conversational, but eventually they'll be as conversational as they were in the chair. So sitting in a chair and delivering your speech is a great way to become conversational when you stand up. That is so interesting. And I love it. I always make my kids stand, even when they're not memorized. We, we have a music stand in our yeah. forensics classroom and I always just make them constantly stand and deliver. But the idea of letting them sit in order to help bring a conversational tone first is something that I've never even thought to do. Yeah, no, it's it's really helpful. And then the other thing that they won't want to do, even though I'm sure you've told them to do, is to videotape themselves. Oh, we are huge about videotaping our kids. And other coaches are always very taken aback when we tell them that we make our kids film themselves and then they have to take notes about them and then they have to bring those notes to their next practice session. But a lot of the times there are things that you as a coach are seeing and you are unable to properly verbalize to a student somehow until they see it themselves. And they go, oh, that's the same thing that my coach and those three judges have been telling me that I was doing wrong and I just yeah. never realized it. Right. And you can't because you are, they, they have to see it to believe it and you will get much more rapid progress with your delivery if they use it as a tool to see for themselves because they have to understand it. Cause first of all, they aren't going to buy into doing it if they don't believe it, even though you're telling them because it seems foreign and false. And that's not true. That's not the way I feel. And I can, you know, because what you hear in your head is different than what people see and hear from outside of your body. So watching it on the videotape is transformative in my mind. And I wish kids used it more. I'm glad your kids do it. Um, it's still hard for me to convince kids to do it. And I think it's, it's critically important. So. It also makes for a really fun uh, thing to have for your alumni, just to sometimes send them videos of themselves performing when they were in high school. Oh yeah. At least I think that's fun. Yeah. I've had kids too that have graduated uh, long by and because I pretty much keep everything, you know, wonder if I have a videotape or a DVD that we made out of it or of their script to see again. <laughs> and it's fun. It's fun to share it for them to look back and see those things. So, and people learn from it. And also they love the fact that, that they're being remembered, you know? Yeah. It's just so nice. And then, so we've had this conversation before when we're talking about sort of the physicality of oratory. Do you believe that it's different from other kinds of speech? Cause it is a little bit more conversational than something like an info. So do you think that the the gesturing that students are doing in oratory is going to be different because they're trying to be conversational? Do you think it's a little bit looser than other speech categories? I think um, 
in public speaking, um, really good public speaking gestures should be the same for oratory and informative and extemp speaking. But I do think that oratory, because of the very personal nature sometimes of the topics and the, the conversations, might be a little bit more uh, expressive than you certainly are going to see in an extemp speech. And it's a little, it's your tone is definitely different. I don't know the gestures are different, but you may be a little bit more whole body like with your oratory than with your informative because of the visual nature, uh, the visual aid component of your informative speeches. So it can be, I mean, I do, I mean, and I've certainly seen people do things that are much uh, a little bit more interp style than public speaking style, but it's still usually mm-hmm. in the range of public speaking. Yeah. Did I feel that, like they're, help? they're answer what you were looking for. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just, it was cause I've uh, in Wisconsin, we have a different kind of oratory from the national style of oratory. We like to say that it's a little bit fluffier. Kids aren't really discussing things that are very in depth or very deep. And so sometimes oratory here, uh, oratory that's doing well can sort of look like stand-up comedy routines with like research thrown in. And so the the delivery style, both in tone and in physicality, can be very uh not I don't want to say casual, but definitely loose, I feel is the right word. And I feel like there are moments of that uh, in oratories that are on the final stage, mm-hmm. but, uh, I didn't know if other people also saw those things or not, or if it was just me imagining it. Uh, well, I mean, I do think, um, there, there can be trends and I think in, in oratory and, um, sometimes, uh, humor has, um, reached a a special level. And I, and I'm a person that believes that you do have to have levity in your speech and there, and because, you know, if you can get a person to smile with you and, and laugh with you, then you're more likely to also connect to their heart in serious ways too, because they're both angles of your heart for your Mm -hmm. audience. But I don't like to see humor become the uh, hallmark of a great oratory. I want I want the content and the substance to be the main stage. And then in addition to that, you have ways of communicating that message. So, you know, I think content and, and that's that, that we talked about with research earlier and that sort of thing is really important. Yeah. Just one thing I would like to throw in about um, the physicality of oratory and really I think any speech category uh, is that one of the things that can take me out of a speech very quickly is if it looks like the movement is contrived in any way. Mm -hmm. And especially when you're trying to communicate something in oratory that, um, you know, that does enlighten and and often includes some aspect of your personal life, some personal connection to the topic. Um, It's so hard to then watch, you know, a student, you know, take three perfect steps at exactly the right moment and like Mm -hmm. see in in their face, like, and the way they hold their hand that like my coach told me to put my hand out at this time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I would never try to say to a a speaker, like, don't practice your movement, but it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it's gotta be so practiced. It looks like you're not even thinking about it anymore because you don't want to be it, a pilot, no. Yeah, and it it just it it to me it takes it takes me out of the moment 
when I see a, a movement where you can tell it was put on the kid and it didn't come naturally, yeah. um, or it wasn't practiced enough to the point where it looks like it came naturally. Yeah. You're, you're right in the sense that kids have to more organically approach their, their, their gestures. And, you know, for some kids, uh, just standing in front of an audience is super awkward. Yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, trying to remember what you're going to say and let alone gesture with it. So it does sometimes look artificial. Um, the most important thing I think for kids to do is just to think of expressing their speech more uh, and feeling it all from the inside out rather than putting it on from the outside in. And yeah. if you can be motivated about what you're talking about, your arms and legs will feel it and your, your hands will do it. And I'd rather see less gestures and, and more internal heart than more gestures and such. So I, I think that, that that's hard to do because you got to get comfortable enough with your own physicality to, to let loose. But yeah. when you really start to feel it, it's pretty easy to gesture. So, but that's something they need to watch on a videotape too, because they don't know if they're looking awkward. Or not. <laughs> you know, that's, a, that's a good catch. Yeah. And now, so we've sort of been talking about as we've been going through, but what do you think that students are learning and oratory that they're taking out into regular life? I know that you and Joe have this philosophy that forensics is more about preparing for the real final round that is going out into the world. Uh, so what do you think that oratory is teaching students that they are taking out into that real final round? Well, gosh, I didn't know you knew that, but yes, we do believe in that. And that this is, this is all about life skills and what you're doing. Um, honestly, oratory is everything because it's the ability to analyze ideas. It's the ability to research and prove your case it's about the ability to be comfortable in front of one or more people uh, and to communicate your ideas. It's about building confidence to put yourself out there, whether it's your beliefs um, or your ideas um, or a plan that you want to put forward and convince people of it. And that real final round will come in the shape of a job interview, a college interview, um, student, uh, you know, a student who grows up to become a parent and wants to speak at a school board for their own child, um, people that want to speak out on political events or social events. So for me, oratory is wonderful because it gives you all the tools, like speech in general, but I mean, oratory, if you're asking me specifically because of that research base and analytical base. And delivery base gives you such an arsenal to use in your future um, because there's a lot more final rounds out there that are the ultimate reason to be doing all this. So, And I feel like oratory can be a really intimidating category for kids because it does ask a lot out of a student to not only draw attention to something that they care about or are passionate about. But a lot of them choose when we're talking about that aspect of heart, they're choosing to be really vulnerable with an audience. Mm -hmm. But, and we've had this discussion on the podcast recently about what that vulnerability does for both the student and for the audience. But I feel like teaching kids how to channel that vulnerability into something positive and how to 
relate to groups of people is a lesson that we teach in all aspects of forensics, but especially in oratory when students are getting to do it with their own words. Mm-hmm. I think it's something that we are are losing in some aspects of our society where we're not being real or honest or vulnerable with each other. And I feel like oratory is an, a venue where we not only encourage, but we reward students for taking that chance with us as their audience members, as their coaches, as their judges. And it's one of the things that I love most about the category. Yeah. Well, you know, communication is about honesty and uh, your willingness to share your truth. And um, it's, it's the ability to communicate that in a way that will connect with others. Now, with that said, um, you know, there's some talk about whether um, when they share and, and are vulnerable, that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to reveal something huge about your own life. You might have, you know, you might have connections to this topic that aren't personal. And there may be heart stories of other people's lives that are shared that aren't yours. So it's not a demand of the event to do that. But I think what is a demand is that you believe in what you say and you're connected with it and that you want to honestly communicate your beliefs about it. And that allows a student to have whatever levels of personal engagement that they want to have, because it's not a requirement of the event to have, you know, a heart story that's a personal life story. You can have heart stories that are um, heart stories of other people (laughs) that illustrate what your point is. So I think it's just it's just good to know that we're all human beings and we all have struggles and we all have uh, accomplishments. And if there's something these kids can learn to share or share other people's um, examples from it, then, you know, we communicate more on a human level. And that's important. I just want to keep listening to you talk. (laughs) I know, right? I'm like, what other questions can we ask for you to just keep talking about? Um, Well, can I, can I ask a question that's like not necessarily oratory specific, but just like forensic specific or is that okay, Kurt? Yeah, of course. Okay. So another thing that you have talked about is that forensics Well, I'm sure in a lot of aspects of extracurriculars, but for you and forensics, the goal is always excellence and winning is just something that gets to come out of that excellence. Mm -hmm. And that message like rings so true for me as someone who's constantly trying to curate a great like team environment and is always trying to motivate my kids for the things that are achievements outside of the hardware and the medals. What do you think that we as coaches can be doing to help continue reminding our kids that the activity is about striving for excellence and not just winning, that winning is just sort of the bonus that comes along from striving for excellence? Yeah. So you're right. This The slogan that I've always used is that excellence is the uh, goal and winning is a bonus. Bonus is like meaning it's like it's nice if it happens. But you're not going in there to uh, win. You're going in there to share your truth. And the, the excellence part of it is the fact, the reason I like excellence is it's like my favorite word. I think you can be excellent in the way you treat other people. I think you can be excellent in the way you do your work. I think you can be excellent in the way you live your life for the right reasons, etc. And so excellence is something that is a standard that is very high and always grows. The problem with competition is that kids think of 
excellence as first place and or second place or third or fourth or whatever, a ribbon. It's a tangible, a tangible reward for what you did. And there are what I call hollow victories. There's going to be times in life where students get a, a ribbon or a trophy or something, and they probably didn't even work really hard or maybe didn't really deserve it compared to somebody else. Something happened and it it's great. But if you live your life on the tangible uh, rewards, it's going to be uh, a frustrating thing. You have to live it on a standard that's higher that you can see as rewarding. And it's, it's motivating because the reason I like excellence as the goal is because that standard is very high and it probably keeps going. Like I used an example in a, in, in a pep talk uh, a little while back about um, – you know, when we had the Olympics and the skaters were so great and how Russia is so great mm-hmm. at, at skating. And one of the announcers said, um, there's all these other skaters um, that are that are getting scores. And then there's Russian. And Russian was like way better than the 10, way better than the mark because they've moved the bar over and over and over again. And it's an example of how excellence in anything you do is is just a high standard to try to continue to be your very best at what you can do and then to strive for more and i think it just it gets a great result it's it's what leads kids to rewrite it it's what leads them to practice it's what leads them to treat their competitors graciously um so that's that's the life skill that's part of it too that's not just uh it's part of the life of doing it so i hope that makes some sense i'm just uh I'm just sharing that belief. <laughs> it does. And the fact that you used a figure skating like analogy, I just want <laughs> you to know that my heart is soaring right now. Also, before I forget, and while I am here, I just want to point out to everyone who's ever made fun of me for having done group discussion as a category in high school, Pam Katie Wyckoff also did group discussion. So it's a cool, fun thing. You did that. All right. I did group discussion here. We don't have it anymore. The category got. We took, we got rid of it a few years back, but I did it for a year and a half, my freshman into my sophomore year before I transitioned into uh, public address speaking. I did group discussion. So yeah. there's many benefits to it. I mean, it really is a life skill. It really is to work in a group and come to problem solving. It's a, it's a great life skill. Yeah, I loved it. Mm-hmm. Well, I hate to see our time together come to an end, but we are approaching our last question. <laughs> Um, which is that I know I would love to hear about any memorable performances that you guys have had uh, that maybe that we've already talked about, maybe that we haven't yet talked about in this conversation. Uh, But we always like to celebrate some of the performances that we've seen that have really uh, stuck with us. Um, Well, I um, I've seen lots and lots of great, performances in oratory from many, many schools um, throughout the country. I think of programs um, in Texas and California and Pennsylvania, all across the country in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. There's just great, great performances all over. If I, if I were to think of some performances that have left impressions on me as a coach to help me learn, um, I'm going to pick a, a person from Wisconsin in honor of this moment here. Oh. If you ever knew of um, Art McMillan, and, who coached at Eau Claire in Wisconsin for a long time. He had a student who did a Behold the Eagle speech in the early 80s, and it had beautiful imagery and style along with substance. 
He was a tremendous coach. And uh, for me as a young coach, that's an early speech that really shaped what it was. Um, the strong female speaker that I thought did a tremendous job. And it was just a beautiful, beautifully crafted oratory that, that added new dimensions uh, to what I thought the event was. So that's an early one. You may not be able to find that tape anymore. But <laughs> I wanted to give a shout out to uh, Art on that if he's listening. So, And um, uh, my husband's son, Joe, at Chesterton did a speech also in 87 about the importance of um, being a follower which is uh, listen to the drumbeat. And mm. that speech was eye-opening because it was the, that aha moment of changing perspectives where so often we think that being the leader is the most important thing, but if the world doesn't function without good followers. And that was a speech that many people I know that were coaching at the time along with me was like, that was another aha moment. Yeah. And so, that that notion had like a, a moment a couple of years ago. So he was way behind his, uh, way ahead yeah. of his time. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I really like in terms of, of research and value oriented um, uh, speeches, uh, Laura Rail gave a speech in 2006 on the importance of forgiveness. She used a... Um, a vehicle of Bill Buckner would approve and about the story of Bill Buckner never really being forgiven for ruining a world series achievement. And I loved that speech because it was about the importance of something that now today, there's a lot more research about how not forgiving is a, um, is so harmful to your health and your psyche and all kinds of things. And I think that she was, uh, kind of ahead of her time in that research area. So I loved that particular speech because it was really a good value oratory. And, and Sarah Cook, slightly after that, did one on gratitude, which I thought was really good. And I really loved the, the research base and the, the frameworks that they used. So, and then you mentioned uh, Nader's a little earlier and his old speech was also a great aha moment. It was a good example of a student who comes from, uh, family in Egypt who really values uh, incredible traditions and honors and beliefs that are old and in, in a country that is now uh, very in America where things seem to happen very, very uh, quickly and we discard things. I thought that perspective was great. So it was cool that Melissa happened to mention that for him. I mentioned at the beginning that that was one of my favorites. There's others. It's very dangerous for me to not say them because <laughs> people have all special places in my heart for what they have created. But those are some ones that I think I felt great aha moments either by watching other people's uh, kids or um, watching my own students be able to put that together. So absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, like we say every week when we, we do, you know, typically we're doing episodes after we've been to like a weekend of competitions and we try to talk about the best thing we saw each week. And we always, you know, make a point of saying this is to celebrate kids who did well, but it's not a knock on the kids we're not talking about. Right, right. Same, exactly. same here. We're just celebrating ones that are, that we are thinking of in the moment. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but really we're celebrating the whole category and the whole activity and every person who participates in it. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. uh, Melissa, do you have any oratories that stand out to you? I mean, that one definitely was one that sort of set me on the path for the way that we 
do oratory now. Uh, also, she's now a friend of one of my former uh, students, but uh, Andrea, I want to say her last name is Ambam. Uh, yeah. seeing her at finals, I think back in 2014 was incredible. Cause she is one of those speakers where I would listen to her talk about anything, but I walk, the best oratories for me are where I walk away realizing that I cared about something that I didn't care about before I walked into the round. Yes. And yes. she was one of those speakers that did that so well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. America minus the dream was her speech in 2014 that she won. I happen to know that because I have that pulled up as one that I was going to mention as well. Oh, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It was well, part of what was special about that for me is, I mean, I think at that moment in 2014 as a nation, we were just starting to come to terms with uh, maybe what not had yet or what had yet to be articulated as the Black Lives Matter movement. But we were certainly starting to think about and talk about uh, white privilege and, you know, coming from a very white part of the country. Um, you know, the way that she shared her experience had me reexamine my own mm-hmm. life um, and it changed my perspective. And it, it was, you know, there's there was before that speech and there was after that speech. Yeah, and to me, that's. Yeah, wow. like that is that's that's powerful. That's what oratory is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, well, Pam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, we're so happy to finally be able to talk with you. And I hope it won't be the last time because I feel like we barely scratched the surface. Oh, my gosh. Of this could be hours could long. Share. I have so many questions that I didn't even answer half of them. This is like an actual like goal that you helped realize for the both of us having been such, at least on my end, such a fan of yours for a while. And I'm just so appreciative of not just the work you do with students, but the work that you're doing now being retired in the way that all forensics people are retired, which is to say not Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) And just doing everything that you can to help keep promoting our activity and keep making it a better place to be I, I know that people don't say it all the time, but people like me are so grateful for people like you. So thank you so much. And I'm grateful for all the work you did. As I mentioned, it's it's like everybody is a part of this and we all believe in the importance of this activity. And if we didn't believe in the importance, we wouldn't spend the tons of time and hours and determination to help these kids uh, really, really develop in powerful ways. So your your willingness to take time out of your already busy schedule to try to put together some podcasts that are going to help other people improve is uh, a true credit to you guys too. So um, thank you for doing what you do too. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. That means a lot. And uh, is, so you had state, so is your season over now or do you have more to do before nationals? State was just this weekend. And then of course there's uh, NIETOC and EOC and, NCFL and NSDA. So there's lots of things happening, you know, <laughs> for students that are left. So there's there's lots of things that, that that they're trying to accomplish. So it goes on, but of course in varying degrees, just as um, you know, it is for everybody. So 
Good. Well, good luck to all of your students and uh, all of your students who have become coaches and everybody who's listening with the rest of uh, their season. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to uh, see each other at nationals because that would be. I promise to introduce myself if I see you in Dallas. Right. You have to. Okay. I will. All right. (laughs) Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you. Forensic Spaces is proudly produced in Wisconsin, the birthplace of the National Forensic League. Our theme song was written and performed by J.J. Hammeister. If you're a fan of Forensic Spaces, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can get in touch with Melissa and me by emailing listen at ForensicSpaces.com. You can also find links to all our social media accounts and online merch store by visiting ForensicSpaces.com. I'm Kurt. And I'm Melissa, encouraging you to listen, think, and speak. Preferably in that order. 